Jews singing in Arabic, Arabs singing in Hebrew, religious right-wing politicians joining Arab-Jewish parties, Moroccan music royalty. Today on Shtetl, meet Avraham Bourg, Zionist aristocrat? Or is he anti-Zionist? Discover the music of Sami El Maghribi, a Moroccan legend who sang in the King's Palace, lived in Montreal, was buried here in Israel. Ideas from right, left, and center. Music from Tel Aviv, Morocco, Israel, and Palestine. Thanks for tuning in to the third edition of Shtetl Middle East on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. I'm your host, Tamara Kramer, and you can download this or past episodes of Shtetl on the Shortwave from iTunes or at shtetlmontreal.com. Today on Shtetl, we're going to hang out in Jerusalem with Avraham Borg, a former Labour Party politician, speaker of the Knesset, chairman of the World Zionist Organization, and to many people's surprise, he is now a member of the leftist party Hadash, the only Jewish Arab party in Israel's parliament today. But first, who is Sami al-Maghribi? In honor of the Jewish Museum of Montreal's pop-up exhibit about this famed Moroccan musician happening next week at the Nuit Blanche, Shtetl decided to find out about a legend who lived in Montreal and in Israel. Sami al-Maghribi was born in Morocco in 1922 and today is the anniversary of his death. Last night in Netanya, a small city in Israel, the Andalusian Orchestra in Netanya performed in honor of Sami al-Maghribi. Sami's granddaughter, Liz Maman, was there to sing her grandfather's songs. We'll hear from her soon. I also spoke with Raymond Allon, the conductor of the choir and a friend and colleague of Sami Al-Maghribi's. But first, let's take a listen to the man they called the Lion of Morocco. شبابي وفرقت حبابي أوعدي على وحيدة على وحيدة كل نهار محنا جديدة بالليل يا صحابي يكتر عذابي أوعدي على وحيدة على وحيدة كل نهار محنا جديدة عياني شفت عدياني أوعدي على وحيدة على وحيدة كل نهار محنا جديدة الحب فناني من بات شيهاني أوعدي على وحيدة على وحيدة كل نهار محنا جديدة ضيعت أيامي وتركت خيامي أوعدي على وحيدة على وحيدة كل نهار محنا جديدة هيج بغرامي ما يطيبش منامي أوعدي على وحيدة على وحيدة كل نهار محنا جديدة
شكي بضراري أوعدي على وحيدة على وحيدة كل نهار محنة جديدة دمعي يا ماري حرقة الشفاري أوعدي على وحيدة على وحيدة كل نهار محنة جديدة سهران الليالي ولا نريح بالي أوعدي على وحيدة على وحيدة كل نهار محنة جديدة هيم في هبالي ولعرفت كي جرالي أوعدي على وحيدة على وحيدة كل نهار محنة جديدة ما زلني حاصل أن ودي على وحيدة تمني عمري كله نعدي مع وحيدة مازلني هايم في وعدي على وحيدة كل يوم نرجى يكمل سعدي مع وحيدة مازلني نقاصي في غرامي على وحيدة نبات ونقيل بنظامي مع وحيدة مازلني تايه في حلامي على وحيدة شاهين عذبي طول ايامي مع وحيدة مازلني صابر وراضي على وحيدة نرجع عمري كل قاضي مع وحيدة مازلني عابد في انشادي على وحيدة تهنى ويذهبن كدي مع وحيدة That was Sami Al Maghribi. We're back on Shtetl on the Shortwave on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. Last night in Netanya, I had the privilege of hearing the beautiful oud playing of Sami's friend and colleague. Here he is reminiscing about his old friend, Sami. My name is Rahami Minibru Raymond Alon. I was born in, uh, in Morocco. I play the oud like Sami was playing. Would you tell me who Sami El Maghrabi is? Ah, Sami El Maghrabi was, I, at my uh, point of view, best and the biggest uh, cantor and uh, uh, chazan and compositor in uh, in Morocco in the last uh, century. Okay. In the last century, I, I, I talking about the Jewish music. Okay, he was the, the, the best in Morocco because he was talking five languages: Arab, English, and uh, French, and Spanish, and Hebrew. And uh, he was a complete uh, personage, very interesting, very intelligent. Yes, he, he also he was the renovator. You know, in English, the renovator of the Algerian music, classic Andalusi Algeria. Also, he took a lot of uh, old songs in uh, of Algeria, and if he was not recording this, they should be forgotten. Okay, and for that also, he was in Morocco. He was very loved, beloved by the kings, Mohammed Hamishi, Mohammed V. And Hassan too. He was their musician for the Judeo-Arab music, and he was one of the few persons that were invited in the royal palace. Okay. So, did he ever tell you any stories of uh, being invited to the palace and what it was like there, or of playing music for the king? Sure. When he was singing, he was very close to the king. And uh, also he, make, he wrote when the king of Morocco comes back from the exile, okay, in uh, 56 or 57, he wrote two songs for this occasion. He did a lot, like uh, he have classic songs, 
that they become classics, like Omri Manensakia Mama that you heard today by uh, his granddaughter uh, Liz Maman. Lemlein, if, if I have millions, Olsi was a very old song, and uh, he has a song which, which is of uh, love. Kaftanak Mahlul, Yalala. What does that mean? Kaftan, you know what's a kaftan? Yes. As we say, he, he tells to, to his uh, girl, your kaftan is opened. Don't leave nobody to touch him. <laughs> Interesting, <laughs> no? How did you know Sami? First, uh, I was a fan of Sami since my age of five uh, or six. When, when he was uh, a star, in the 50s, okay, I, I was eight, mm -hmm. okay, and so uh, I love these songs, I always learn these songs, uh, for me he's a, uh, he's a master, okay, uh, even if he didn't teach me by himself, for me it was a model, a model, and uh, what I'm doing now is according to, to what I learned with him, okay? In Ashdod, when he was, he was the first that programmed an orchestra in Dalusi in Israel with Russian, uh, Russian musicians and Moroccan musicians and everywhere. You can see in my orchestra also I have three Russian, I used to have five, but uh, because of the weather they didn't come today, but there are Russian also, I have an Algerian, I, have, I, 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 all, I explained everything when I talked to the public. To the public. Unfortunately, I don't speak Hebrew. No problem. But I saw that it was very diverse. Russian musicians, Algerian musicians. So I see that it's interesting because a lot of young Jewish people in Israel today do not speak Arabic. And all the singers here it's, are wearing kippahs, and, but they're all older and they sing in Arabic. Do you think something was lost in th in that the young people today don't speak no, the language? It's not lost. Uh, uh, at my point of view, uh, the life must continue. Okay, today we are in Israel. Uh, there is the second or the third generation that they didn't uh, speak Arabic. Some we sing in Hebrew a lot of songs of Sami of uh, Arabic songs. It's not lost, that's the nature. Also in Morocco now, you have young people with guitars and uh, organ and, uh, uh, and they sing differently than we, we, uh, we sang uh, uh, 50 years ago, okay? That's the life, that's the, the rule, that's my point of view, okay? The, the young people now are the managers of the radio and, uh, and they say they work for, for their generation. It's a pity, but that's the life. <laughs> but do you feel there's a new interest in the music of Samuel Magrebi and other people like something. him? In Morocco, there is a big interest in, Mar in Morocco because there is actually a renaissance, okay? And uh, they do a lot to, uh, to conserve all, all these things. And uh, I had the honor to be invited with his daughters and sons uh, three years ago, and, to, and the Moroccan uh, cultural company of Rabat, they made for him a big uh, uh, celebration. Celebration, yes, and to to consecrate him as a Moroccan big musician and cantor. Okay, and there are a lot of young people that in Morocco. Uh, they try to sing it's, uh, the, the Samil Maghribi is a is a, a, a very important part of the music, uh, Moroccan music. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, thank you also, and uh, hello for all my friends in uh, in Canada: Simon Cohen, Robert Cohen, Marc Cadida, Albert Ohayon, a lot of uh, friends from my town of Morocco, Setat. They're in Montreal. They live in Montreal, all these. Uh, I have a lot of friends in Montreal. Wow. Very nice. Merci beaucoup. Merci. Before we hear my conversation last night with Sami's granddaughter, take a listen. This is Elise Maman performing her grandfather's music last night in Natanya.
I am a mother of three wonderful kids and my eldest one is going to the army, to the Navy in four days from now. So it's very, very exciting and moving. Who is Sami al-Maghrebi? Sami al-Maghrebi is my granddad. He's my uh, fa father of my mom. He was a legend. He was uh, very, very young when he started to sing and to compose and to write his own songs. His most famous song is Omri Manin Sakya Mama. I will never forget you, my dearest mom, because he's lost his mother when he was very young. And this song became like a hymn, you say, and you actually heard that uh, tonight, Amara. Oh, that was the song that's the Moroccan version of Yiddish Mama? Yes. The opposite, meaning this was the first song and then Yiddish Mama came out. <laughs> that's the say. Yes, it is. I can say that when people sing this song, there isn't an eye that is left dry because it's actually symbolizing the love that we have to our moms and I assume the love that we have to our homeland, meaning Morocco and the neighborhoods that people, the Jews lived there in the Melach, or they had the culture and the, the you know, the community. So uh, he sang for many, many years. He was very, very much invited to the um, palace of the king, Muhammad, and uh, Hassan. I, I'm not very much familiar with the names, but I have photos which are very exciting. Of him in the palace with the king? Yes, yes, of him, of my dad. My dad was his drum, drumist, how do you say? His drummer. Drummer, yes, he was. And that's how he met my mom. And uh, that's it. I grew up in a very, very musical home. Music was always around me, and I can tell you that, for example, in Rosh Hashanah, in Pesach, in Yom Kippur, my mom used to put a tape, because we lived in Israel, and she used to cook and make the, you know, preparing the holidays meals, and I saw her crying. When I was younger, I just... Wait, but she would put a tape of what? Of his, ah, of his prayers. And I remember cleaning the house, or, you know, being around the house, and the song was always around me, but... I have to, to mention that something strange happened when I turned a bit older, I would say. Meaning, I didn't want to recognize this part of my tradition. I just put myself apart. I said, Arabic? Moroccan? No! Give me Eric Clapton, give me Tina Turner, what's this, you know? Today, I can tell you, I found a treasure. I cannot find a word that will summarize what I feel towards this music and these lyrics and but treasure, a big, hidden, unfound, found, of course, but I, I don't think people know how much it's beautiful. And my concern is that it will be brought 
worldwide and to the young generation because the people that are coming to see, I, I performed with Andalusit Ashkelon more than 14 times in Israel. Uh, most of the audience, audience that came to see us were uh, aged people, meaning? Older people. Older people, yes, older people, not younger, not my age, I would say, and even younger than me. And that is such a pity because in this new age of retro music and, you know, uh, music of the world and uh, ambient music and stuff, I think that this treasure has to get more known. Why do you think that you uh, rejected that part of your heritage, Arabic? And Because you don't actually speak Arabic, right? It's true, I don't. I don't. I, and it's a great pity for me, even though my kids learned at school. But it's not the same. No, I don't understand the words and I don't speak Arabic. But when I sit down and I decide to, to sing a song, for example, Omri Man in Sakya Mama, I sit with my mom or a family and I write every translation of each and every word. Do you think a lot of other young Israelis are the same as you in that they, they're not connected to their heritage if they're Moroccan or if they come from Arab countries? I would say, grosso modo, yes. But, but for example, we just had a little chat and we spoke of, of Dudu Tassa. Dudu Tassa, for example, he's Iraqi, comes from Iraq, his grandparents and father. And he's singing right now his songs in rock manner you know he just i connect to that too teach us let us know where we're coming from it's crucial to know because a person cannot have a future if he doesn't know his past and i want to know my past and i want to i'm very proud of it the arab language and the arab tradition is wonderful it's huge it's tremendous in its contribution to society my grandfathers and my fathers uh, especially which i grew up on when did you learn your grandfather's music? Uh, it happened about two and a half years ago when the Andalusit Ashkelon approached my mom and they wanted to make a research on my granddad. And so I, I sat down with mom and uh, we started to go into the lyrics and the papers and the songs. And my, I don't know how to say it in English, Tamar, but my grandfather wrote with a feather and ink. He wrote, he composed like this, and, and he left many, many papers, you know, like uh, it's, it's wonderful. So what does uh, Sami al-Maghrebi, am I saying it right? Al-Maghrebi. Sami al-Maghrebi. From the Maghreb. Okay, Sami al-Maghrebi. What does he mean to you? I think of him in two ways. This is my grandfather, first of all. He's my family. Uh, I can say that I wasn't very close to him because he used to live in Canada and I was born in Israel and everything, but I used to live in Canada for three years. We weren't very much close, I would say. So he's grandfather. He's the father of my mom and I respect him and I, I love him as family. But on the other side, I look at him in lots of respect and something very quiet inside of me. Why? Because it gives me confidence. I know that I have a big, a huge uh, um, base that I, I want to explore. And I have something to, to, to give to my kids that it's not only Israeli, you understand? It's, it has centuries ago, years ago, it started far away from here. The language, the music, the sound, the food, the smell, the, the way of talk, the, the, the little small things that, that give you uh, pleasure to live. So this is how I look at him, as, as a big, big gift that he has left us. And I really, really want to do all what I can do to spread it out. Is there anything else that you could tell me about Sami Al-Maghrebi's life? His history in Morocco before he came to Israel that you know about any stories that you've heard about him from your family? Well, uh, I can tell you that he was in love with Israel. He loved Israel. He loved the culture. He loved the language. He loved the, the cl climate, you say? He used to live here for a few years. He wanted to be buried in Israel. He said, I'm not going to die in any other place, only here. And I want my soul to be here. Because we, live in, we believe in Mashiach, and everything. 
So uh, he was very tzioni. He always, uh, I remember when I was a soldier that he was proud and he told my mom that he's proud. And he used to live in Canada then. Um, I can tell you that he was very, in spite of the fact that he was huge, he was very much loved in Morocco, in Egypt, in Algiers. He was very humble. He never waived his success and he never wanted, uh, you know, glamour and uh, respect. He was, when he used to come to the stage, we, the family used to have a little joke that he's like a little kid and we hope that he's not going to say shtuyot. You know, like shtuyot is a deconnerie. <laughs> because he, that's who he was. He was very real, you know, true. He didn't have any masks. Mm -hmm. So what you see is what you get. And I, I am lesimchati. I'm happy that I had the chance to sing once with him in the Beta Opera Tel Aviv. And I sang Lamouni. This is an Algeric song. And he taught me that. So I had a little musical moment with him. What, what's the song? The song is uh, Algeric, from Algiers, and it's Lamouni li gharoumani Qalu li ashraj bekfiha Lamouni li gharoumani Qalu li ashraj bekfiha Jawabti li jahlu fanni Khudu ini shufu biha it's actually a song that is talking about craving for Israel. All the people that used to live in the Gola, worldwide, you know. What's the most thing that they wanted to, to achieve, to do? To come and to live here. To go back to Israel. To come home. So, La Moledet Shuvironi, Go back to your country. It's a song that is speaking of the country of Israel as a beautiful wife that you are coming to. Tonight I sing Wahida. Uh, this is a love song, but a very delicate one, you know. I can tell you that if I compare love songs that are written today or even years ago, I can tell you that um, it is not subtle anymore. Nothing stays hidden, you know. So his songs are always uh, hinting of the love. They do not express it, you know, with that you don't have anything to imagine. Mm -hmm. Apparently he was a really like attractive man and the ladies loved him. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. You don't know how much. Look, there is a picture here. Tamara, I showed you. He looks like Humphrey Bogart. He was a very <laughs> handsome man. Very, very. This is him. And he was very much uh, courted by women. It's not a secret. He used to sing and uh, for very uh, respectable uh, people, even in the Arab society, not only Jewish, minister, ministers, politically, you know, the king. So uh, you can imagine that he uh, was uh, <laughs> surrounded by uh, men and women as well. But I can tell you that he was, first of all, a family man. He loved his wife very much. He loved his kids very much. He wanted to give them Jewish education. Education. It was crucial for him. He didn't want to give it up. And that is why he was always speaking of big uh, uh, love and gagwim. Uh, um, when you miss someone, how do you say? Something like yearning. Y yearning, yes, to come to Israel, to live here. Yes. Everyone that hears this uh, conversation that we're having, Please go into your past. Look what's inside this uh, old suitcase of yours, hidden upstairs there in the attic. Get acquainted with it. See the marvelous things that are inside. Hello, this is Rabbi Gershon Sizomu, the spiritual lead of the Abidaya congregation in Uganda. You are here live on Stato on the short web.
If you happen to be in Montreal next week, find out more about Sami El Maghribi's life at the Jewish Museum of Montreal's pop-up exhibit, Sacré Profane. We'll put a link to the event on Stadel's Facebook page. Now, if ever there was a controversial figure on the Israeli scene, Avraham Berg would fit the bill. He is seen as a visionary to some and a traitor to others. Berg has recently joined Hadash, Israel's only Arab Jewish party. I met with him this week in Jerusalem to find out why. Recently, Amira Haas described you as Zionist aristocracy in Haaretz. And then in the Jerusalem Post, I read that you're an anti-Zionist. You went from being Speaker of the Knesset in 1985, a member of the Labour Party and Chairman of the World Zionist Organization, to joining Hadash, the only Jewish Arab party in the Knesset. What role does Hadash play in the Knesset and why did you join the party? First, uh, with your permission, I'd love to ignore other people labeling me. Let me label myself, okay? Um, I am I'm looking at, at the Israeli reality as, uh, as an incomplete one, sometimes even a broken one. And every day I ask myself, how can, how can we fix it? I mean, if it doesn't work, let's fix it. And one of the things that I realize the entire Israeli discourse is national and nationalistic one. My collective, your collectives, my concept of the collective, your concept of the tribe, ethnical tribes, groups, collectives, etc. And in between, something very significant was lost. And this is the human. This is the individual. This is the one. What's the difference between the nationalistic discourse and the discourse of the one? The nationalistic one assumes that I'm the Jewish collective and I'm superior, either because I was chosen uh, biblically or I'm superior because I have the power or because of whatever other things. And therefore I have so many privileges and I can deprive the other from the same privileges. What's the concept of the one? That every human being was, is born equal to the other. And out of this equality grows the entire social structure. And in Israel, the litmus paper for discrimination and for the inequality of the one is the internal discrimination of the 20% Palestinian Israelis who are living in Israel. I'm looking for a political place which is fully committed to the equality between Jews and Arabs within Israel ready to do it together and committed for a comprehensive solution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The only party which is fully committed for the Jewish and Arab partnership and coalition is Hadash. So I joined it. What role does Hadash play in the Knesset? As for today, it belongs unfortunately to the uh, um, underprivileged, to the pariahs. The paradox of being an Arab in Israel is as follows. There is a technical full citizenship. The Book of Law does not have even one ayara, which is discriminating one. But the practical level is hollow citizenship. So Herzog, which is the champion of the former labor and now the, as if the alternative to Netanyahu, the Zionist camp. What is the Zionist camp? Oh, that's the camp of the Jews without Arabs, right? Yeah. Actually, it's an excluding camp. Even him, which is the most, he's the nicest person around, and he's a nice person. But the kind of labeling he put on his camp immediately says, yes, it's a discourse of the Jews, so what about the 20% or not? No answer. What event or moment along the road happened for you to change political persuasion so dramatically? Because you are really coming from a different place now to be in the Hadash party. Zionist aristocracy. <laughs> in many cases, I'm less changed than the Israeli reality is changed. I'm much closer to where mainstream Israel was 30, 40 years ago or where my family was 20, 30, 40 years ago. If I tell you in Canada, listen, I'm for equality of each and every citizen. I'm for equality of men and women. I'm for the secularism of the system in the sense that there should be a kind of separation between church and state. 
I think that the state belongs to all of its citizens, and I would like to see a fair distribution of public wealth. You will say, well, you're quite a Democrat, mainstream Democrat. When I say the same thing as in Israel, I'm a no-good Nick, I'm a Trojan horse, I'm a traitor, I'm a world poisoner. And I say, well, something is wrong if the society sees such basic Western political values as a threat to its very foundation. Now, 20, 30, 40 years ago, this was more or less the direction that Israel took. All of a sudden, because of various reasons, internal and external, uh, social and economic and demographic and political, Israel is in a different place. Israel is not anymore the kind of democracy it was established in 1948. It's not a social democrat one. It's not uh, a secular one. It's arch-capitalist, arch-religious, arch-fundamentalist, and arch-nationalist. So Israel moved to a different place. I'm more or less in the same place. The only one step I did is that I moved from the organizing party which organizes the life of mainly the Jews in Israel to the party which tries to uh, help the life, to organize the life of both Jews and Arabs. What do you feel are the most important issues in the upcoming elections? I, I, I don't think anymore that elections are important. They, they have importance, but it is not that it's a watershed of before and after. Before and after will be more or less the same because of two main reasons. A, because I think that by the end of the day it will be Netanyahu who will form the next cabinet. And B, because I have a feeling that Herzog is a very good potential to be a member of Netanyahu's next cabinet. And therefore it's a competition between similars rather than a competition between alternatives. However, the continents are moving and the continents, the Israeli political continents are changing dramatically, it will not be expressed during these elections. I see the continental shift. I don't yet see where it goes. So you don't have a vision for what democracy in Israel would look like? I have a vision. I don't know whether it will arrive there. It's not the same thing. My vision is that we will have a society which is constitutionally based and every individual within the boundaries of Israel, whether they are the boundaries between the Jordan and the Mediterranean or the boundaries of the 48, uh, every individual has the right to have the same rights. Um, it's a secular state with a separation between church and state with a total meaningful and significant uh, integration of the non-Jewish population economy which is fair and closes the gaps between the have and have not, which includes all the excluded populations, might them be women or Ethiopians or Russians or immigrants or Arabs or whatever. Uh, sure, I have a vision for it. Will Israel arrive there? Not this week, next week, maybe. <laughs> So I'm going to ask you a difficult question, but it's something that comes up a lot and I find it confusing. What is the meaning of the Palestinian right of return? What, it, what does that look like and are you in favor of it? Emotionally speaking, I think, I'm not sure because I'm not a Palestinian, so who am I to represent their cause here? I think that the emotion or the sentiment of the Palestinian longing to their homeland destroyed in home places and homeland destroyed in 48 is no less stronger than the 2000 years of longing of the Jews back to their country. Just a bit fresher. It's 2000 years versus 70 years, which is still a very powerful personal memory. Politically speaking, I will divide it into two segments. The first is within Israel. Within Israel are living today something like 165,000 Israeli citizens who are 48 refugees. Supreme Court 
various Supreme Court verdicts indicated that some of them should go back to their original uh, villages, like Ikrit and Beram and few others. Israeli governments and Israeli public uh, commissions recommended the same things. Nothing yet was done. I think it's the responsibility of the state, regardless of the political arrangement with the Palestinian collective and the Palestinian official representative, to solve the misery of its own internal refugees, regardless of the bigger picture. Wait, I'm sorry, 165,000 refugees? Israeli citizens yes. from a Palestinian origin living in Israel. Okay, but there are refugees in Israel. They're not on the land, they're not in the villages, they were never compensated for the war, 48, whatever it is, whatever the reason is. They're the citizens of the state, and the state should treat them differently, recognize their misery, recognize the personal price they paid when the state was established in 48. This is regardless of the bigger picture. Then we go to the bigger picture, and the bigger picture says that the refugee issue is the trauma of the Palestinians. The Holocaust is the trauma of the Jews and the Nakba and the refugees are the uh, trauma of the, of the Palestinians. Instead of competing and saying, my trauma is bigger, your trauma is bigger, it should be recognized as an emotional wound that if, it, if not healed, never shall we have, neither us nor them, shall we have any arrangement. And therefore we should put the, pal the, the, the refugees issues first on the table and come to an agreement that will have few components. Some will return to Israel, some will return to the Palestinian state, some will stay at their places and get compensation, some will be allowed to immigrate to third countries like Canada, like United States of America or Europe. And during this window of opportunity given to the entire, Jew, the entire Palestinian people, the issue will be at least addressed and offered some uh, remedies with one principle only. Yes, we want to correct the wrongs of the past, but you do not correct the wrongs of the past by creating new wrongs. Once this principle is, uh, is applied and once this approach is given, I think it is possible to move on to the other issues on the table, which are borders and sovereignty and power and independence, etc. Do you actually think that, that that type of arrangement is ever going to come to pass? Is it a possibility that the Palestinians that live here will be allowed to go back to their villages, others will receive compensation? You think that that is like a realistic possibility? The minute I will stop to believe in it will be the minute in which I will stop to believe in peace. There is no cheap peace. There is no peace in which Israel will get all the land, will have all the power, a monopoly over all the resources and freedoms, and the Palestinians will again get nothing. There is a price. If Israel wants to have a long-term, sustainable uh, uh, ex existential reality, it should converse with Palestinian needs and motivation and miseries and contain them the same way, by the way, that the Palestinians have to do with the Israeli fears and concerns, etc., which they are there. And without resolving the Palestinian problem alongside the lines I told you, within Israel, within Palestine, in exile, and in third countries, without solving this, nothing will, nothing will hold. So of course I have to believe in it. What do you say to people who are concerned about the Jewish nature of the Israeli state and worried that your stance is one that means that you don't care about there being a Jewish state? If equality stands against the Jewish, the Jewish value system, so maybe we have a different understanding of what equality is. If fairness stands against it, the same. If discrimination is Judaism, so we belong to two different cultures. I say on the contrary, a full comprehensive democratic reality with an equality uh, to, the, to the citizens of Israel who are not Jewish, and peace between uh, uh, Israel and Palestine, this is the implementation, the exercising of the Jewish heritage. For me, the state, any state, should be blind to the ethnical origin of its citizens. I'm a citizen. 
my definition of my Jewishness is being expressed in my community with whom I congregate, with whom I get together. If our congregation or our community is the majority, so, so we know how to live with the minority by respecting the language, the culture, the heritage, the, etc. And if they will become one day the majority, according to the same constitutional agreement, they will respect ours. What do Arabs and Jews in Israel have to gain from getting to know each other and what do they have to lose? Lose is very simple, losing life. The cost of not living together and living in a permanent conflict and friction costs a lot of life. Life within Israel, life outside of Israel, in Gaza, in the West Bank, in the region, etc. When you live in peace beside hope, beside giving better life for your children, beside better prosperity, beside all the benefits of peace, you simply save life. Avram, thank you so much for coming on to Shtetl on the shortwave. Thank you very much. Pleasure. That was Avraham Burg, author and former politician. Thanks for tuning in with open ears and an open mind. Of course, I'd love to hear what people think of the show, so please comment on Shtetl's Facebook page, on the Shtetl website, or send me an email to Tamara at shtetlmontreal.com. This country is constantly surprising me. Conversations I have go from enlightening to frightening to funny and back again in the span of five minutes. I get confused sometimes and deeply sad at certain interactions. And then I'm blown away by the amount of artists and music and endless creativity from all spectrums of the population. Thanks for coming along on the trip with me. Come back in two weeks for another episode of Shtetl Middle East. I'll bring you more of the people and the music and the ideas that I'm bumping into here in Israel and Palestine. A few months ago on Shtetl, we profiled a band called System Ali. And one of the singers in the band, one of the musicians, is a young woman. She's 23 years old. Her name is Luna Abu Nasser. And she just played here in Tel Aviv last week. She's a Palestinian who sings in both Hebrew and in Arabic. And she has a very sweet voice. So I thought this would be a good way to end off today's show. This is Luna Abu Nasser.
Herzachzi Stettel auf den Shortwave auf CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal.